Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not yet approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, and called all his servants, and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you on this Reformation Day, to be reminded anew of the gift that the Word of God is, that we can read the Word, that we can preach the Word, that we can listen to the Word in our own language. And reminded anew of the gift that that is, let us turn in prayer towards that word, that word that as a church calls us together, that word that collects us, that church that, uh, that word that creates us as the church and crafts us into what God intends us to be. Therefore, let us come together in prayer with the faith that God moves and works through his word. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you for what it tells us. We thank you for the ways that it draws us away from ourself and draws us towards you. And most of all, we thank you for the way that it points us to Jesus Christ, who just is the fulfillment of all of your promises. It's in his name that we pray and the power of the Holy Spirit that he has lavished upon us. Amen. Well, this is a bit of a, of a strange text, and we found a number of these in 
our series on Abraham. So we have to ask ourselves some, some questions. Because think about it. If you were going to compose a book that would be the source and the foundation of a global faith, would you include this account from Genesis 20? The one whom God has chosen, the one through whom God will bless all the nations of the earth, surely he must be someone who is above fault, someone who stands far above the shortcomings of all of us other mere mortals, one who is, strictly speaking, a hero, a testament to virtue, the very antithesis of vice. And so we expect the Bible to be a book of heroes. You know, for example, one, uh, something that came to my mind, uh, this would be a, a popular example from the 20th century. If you're familiar with this book, we might think of the unbendable constancy and courage of Ayn Rand's Howard Rourke, the protagonist from The, the Fountainhead. And you may agree or disagree with his doctrine, but we cannot help but be moved by his disposition. Rourke is the very picture of the incorruptible will. He works against all odds, against all obstacles, to implement his vision both for architecture and for humanity. And when he speaks, he does so with the confidence of someone who is free from any and all doubt. For example, at one point he says, I don't make comparisons. I never think of myself in relation to anyone else. I just refuse to measure myself as part of anything. And so we find in Rourke a calm assurance that transcends any resistance, any renunciations, even any rage. As we're told of Rourke in one instance, quote, Rourke stood before them as each man stands in the innocence of his own mind. But Rourke stood like that before a hostile crowd and they knew suddenly that no hatred was possible to him. When we read words like this, we think, yes, this is a person worthy of a divine mission. This is a person that God could really use. This is a person that we can look up to. This is a person who is truly above us, and he's not affected by us because he knows he's so much better than us, but in his graciousness, he's willing to bend down and lift us up to his level. Finally, we think, here's someone who has figured it out. Here's someone that can show us the way. <laughs> that makes sense. That's what we expect. But this is exactly the opposite of what we find here in Genesis 20. We find here a man who lies, who puts his wife in the most vulnerable and exploitative of circumstances, and then makes excuses for everything that he's done. Really, really think about that. If you are going to put someone forward, the person through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed and who would establish this global faith, would you choose Abraham? No. Give me the unflappable courage of Howard Rourke or, or someone like him. That's the kind of person that we expect. But again, this is not what we find in Scripture. We find broken people just like us, broken people who are no better than us, broken people who, like us, make mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. 
And this should surprise us, but it should also give us an important clue. Scripture is not the word of humanity. Scripture is the word of God. If it was the word of humanity, yes, it would read like the fountainhead and we would engage page after page characters like Howard Rourke. Or it might read like a self-help book. That is, we need a little bit of help, a little bit of advice, a little nugget of insight that might get us through the day. Something that we could put on a, a coffee cup or something that would be a really great caption for like a, a cat hanging from a clothesline. That's the kind of thing that we want. Something with the sense of, to again quote Howard Rourke, I just refuse to measure myself as part of anything else. Or, I, I hear this a lot in my home, this is from the, the intro song to one of my kids' favorite cartoons on PBS. Quote, It's a simple message, but it comes from the heart. Believe in yourself. That's the place to start. This is the message, and this is the messenger that we want. We want some kind of Howard Rourke in some way, shape, or form. And why? Because if this is what we find in the Bible, then we're actually in pretty good shape. We only need a kind of push in the right direction. I've heard it said that what we long for is a kind of Home Depot theology. You can do it. God can help. And that's what we want. And that's what we expect but that's not what we find. And surprisingly, this is even what Abraham himself expects. We begin, he begins to see himself as a kind of Howard Rourke, a kind of person that's not like these ordinary lesser folk. In verse 11, we find out that his thought is, there is no fear of God in this place. He assumes that he is more virtuous. He assumes he's more ethical than these people of Gerar. Abraham is one who has been called by God and all of the earth will be blessed through him. Abraham, he thinks to himself, must be someone great. And so what happens? Well, Abraham and the pride that comes from this, he does terrible things. Because he believes that the people of Gerar are so much more wicked than himself, he does something terrible to protect himself. He lies. He tells them that Sarah is his sister because he's, a fear, he, he's afraid that they're going to kill him and take her as the wife. And so rather than face this fear, however unfounded, he forces his wife Sarah to go along with this lie, saying we're siblings, not spouses, and he puts Sarah in an absolutely horrible situation, and he does it all to save his own skin. And the source of his scheming, at least in Abraham's mind, is not himself, not his own vice, but it's those wicked people of Gerar who simply have no fear of God. Of that, Abraham is certain. And then we find out he may have done this many, many times. He tells Abimelech that he asks Sarah to do this to each and every place that they travel. And we've seen this at least one time before in Genesis 12, when Abraham is sojourns in Egypt, and he does the exact same thing. And this, when he does it that time, is immediately after his call from God. He does that right after God addresses him and tells him the following. 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. But then right after hearing these words, he exploits his wife to save his own skin. The person through whom all of the families of the earth will be blessed can't even bless his own family. He's become a curse to his own wife and a curse to the people that he's currently staying with. But he goes further because it's not just the fault of the people of Gerar. In Abraham's mind, it's, it's also the fault of God. As we find in verse 13, as he's explaining what happened to Abimelech, God caused me to wander from my father's house. Abraham is shifting the blame to God. It's God who has thrown himself into these circumstances, or thrown Abraham into these circumstances. And actually, interestingly, what is here translated as God could also be translated as the gods. And, and several Old Testament scholars actually opt for this translation and that it's showing just how low Abraham has sunk. One Old Testament scholar translates that as, when the gods caused me to wonder. And then he comments on it as following, quote, Abraham made his divine call to go to the promised land sound like nothing more than aimless wondering. Instead of witnessing to Abimelech about God's enduring faithfulness to him over the past 25 years, he talked like one pagan to another. Abraham assumes the people of Gerar have no fear of God, but Abraham himself is speaking as one who has no fear of God. In effect, Abraham is saying, you understand, right? You've got to do what you've got to do. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and you have to protect yourself. I'm a very important person. I've received a promise from God himself, or let's just say the gods. And so my self-preservation is of the utmost importance. I've got to stay alive. If I die, we are all in trouble. And so for the sake of everyone's good, I'm going to have to be a little pragmatic at times. It's important to have high-minded religious ideals, and I'm a very religious person, but we also have to factor in the realities of the real world. This is the sense of what Abraham is saying to Abimelech. But the irony goes even deeper because Abimelech, the man assumed to have no fear of God, is actually presented as more virtuous than Abraham. Receiving a warning from God with respect to Sarah, namely to reunite her with Abraham or die, Abimelech acts on this warning immediately. Abimelech, seemingly like, unlike Abraham, recognizes adultery for the grave sin that it actually is. Abimelech forgives Abraham, even though he offers a confession that is mainly just self-justifying excuses. Abimelech offers Abraham a vast amount of silver in the very pick of the land. And Abimelech has the humility to ask for prayer from Abraham, the very one who has brought the curse of death upon him through deception. And perhaps most ironically of all, when Abimelech tells his servants of the way God encountered him in a dream, we find the men were very much afraid. 
Abraham believed the people of Gerar had no fear of God, but the reality here is they have quite a strong fear of God. And the only one acting without a fear of God is actually Abraham himself. And Abimelech, he might not be a Howard Rourke, but at least we might think he's a more apt candidate for carrying on God's purposes through the world. So here we are. What's going on here, and how are we supposed to tie these threads together? Let's think about this again. To remind ourselves, why is it that we want a kind of Howard Rourke instead of a Abraham? Again, if we have a kind of Howard Rourke, then we're pretty much fine on our own. Again, we need some pep talk, we need some advice, we need the Home Depot theology. You can do it, God can help. But if that's true, that means the weight is on us. If what Scripture primarily gives us is an example to follow, well, then the way to go, to come into a proper relation with God is to live according to that example. And if we can do it, we must do it. And if the Bible is simply a book of heroes, then the main thing is to be just like those heroes. We have to measure up. We have to do it ourselves. We have to be as good as them. We have to work and strive and work and strive. We have to become a kind of biblical Howard Rourke, just as unflappable, just as courageous. And if that's the case, then what saves us, what makes us good and acceptable in the sight of God is our own fortitude. However, there's a problem. We are not anything like Howard Rourke. And Howard Rourke, of course, is not real. Even as a literary character, he feels more like the embodiment of a philosophical idea than a real, actual human being. We're not like this. We fall short. We fail to measure up. We all carry huge weights of regret. We might think that we want an example. But do we? Do we want everything that that entails? Again, if Scripture is primarily giving us an example, then the main purpose of Scripture is showing us all the ways we fall short of God's standards and expectations. If Abraham is faultless, we are hopeless. If Abraham were faultless, then he would be worthy of the call of God. It would be his due, not God's gift. It would be like having an an older sibling who is constantly just making us look horrible by comparison. A sibling who gets straight A's, plays every varsity sport, gives all their free time to charity, got a full scholarship to college, and then landed the perfect job. And so the constant refrain from our parents would be, why can't you be more like your older sibling? Is this how God relates to us? If Abraham was a version, uh, some biblical version of Howard Rourke, the answer would be yes. The operative assumption would be, Abraham did it, so can you, so should you. Your older brother Abraham did it, you can do it too. And if that were the case, then we would have a God who is constantly dissatisfied with us, constantly disappointed in all of our efforts. We would relate to God like a child whose parents are never pleased or proud, who never receives the approval that he or she so desperately seeks. But that's not what we find. What we find is Abraham, 
someone who just like us is a mess. But is this where the Bible leaves us? Friedrich Nietzsche puts forward the, the following idea of the sacred. He says, the sacred is that at which you are not allowed to laugh. There are many ways we can understand what it means to live in a secular age, and, and toward that end, philosophers Hubert Dreyfus and Sean Kelly build on this thought from Nietzsche. They point out that in times past, there were always things that were so sacred, so highly revered in a culture that you were not allowed to laugh at them. However, looking at the modern West, they argue that there's now nothing at which we're not permitted to laugh. And that is to say, nothing is sacred. Now, now their book, All Things Shining, actually came out about 10 years ago, and, and I, would, I would argue that things have changed a little bit since then. And, and actually, interestingly, um, we've had a number of, of social tensions as of late center upon the work of, of comedians. But nonetheless, I think this general theory of secularity holds. If you can laugh at it, it is not sacred. If you can laugh at it, it has become secularized. And is that what the Bible is doing here? Is, is the Bible a kind of proto-secular text by putting forward Abraham? Is the Bible laughing at virtue, at marriage, at sex, at the proper treatment of women, at truthful speech, at confessions of wrongs? Is the Bible a book that actually undoes the idea of the sacred? Is it a book that actually claims nothing is really worthy of reverence? That everything is a joke, a laugh, an object of mockery and ridicule? If the Bible does not put forward Abraham as an example and instead puts him forward as a mess just like ourselves, is the Bible the ultimate work of irony? Is it a sacred text that undoes, that deconstructs the sacred? Is it just a sarcastic joke that laughs at anything we might try to revere? Well, no, that's, that's not right either. The Bible charts a different course. It neither crushes us under the weight of a, the example of some kind of Abrahamic Howard Rourke, but it also doesn't mock everything that we hold dear. If it was the first option, it would, it would only leave us with resignation. If it was the second, it would only leave us with ridicule. If all we had was an example, we would have the choice of, of resignation, but it would lead us to despair because we'd constantly see how we fall short of some standard. We'd be crushed under the weight, and then we'd be forced to just give up. But if it was the second option, that of ridicule, we'd give up straight from the start because the standard itself is a joke. It's a laugh, a lark. So then our resignation or ridicule are only two options. Is this our choice? Either we continue to revere the ideals we hold dear and so look away from the messes we actually are, messes that trample on these ideals each and every day, or do we take a hard look at the messes we actually are and just laugh at those unobtainable and seemingly naive pie-in-the-sky principles? Either we look up or we grow up. We can't, it seems, have it both ways. But is this the final word? Yes, the Bible presents Abraham as a mess, just like us. But God also calls Abraham to account. Marriage, 
sex, the proper treatment of women, truthful speech are so important that if things continue on their current trajectory, God will enforce the punishment of death. Abimelech himself will be killed. God works to set all of these things right because God sees all of these things as sacred. They're not objects of laughter, of ridicule, of mockery, of cynicism. And if you treat them as such, you will incur the wrath of God. These things are to be revered and God will have it no other way. Even more, Abimelech, while faring better than Abraham, still falls far below God's standard of justice and righteousness. We've talked about a key rule for reading Scripture, that that of Scripture interpreting Scripture, and in the Reformation, this was known as the analogy of, of faith. And what light does that cast on the present text? Well, in Deuteronomy 17, we find that the king is not meant to have many wives, a practice that, that certainly goes against what we see here with Abimelech. But even more in, uh, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul tells us that the elders of church, the church, if, uh, if they are married, they're to be men of one wife. Either like Paul, they are single, or like Peter, they have one wife. And Paul's easy assumption of this ethic shows us that it's the basic biblical understanding. It's one particular manifestation of the biblical ethic of love, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. One husband is to love one wife as himself, and one wife is to love her husband as herself. And at bottom, when we look at this, Abimelech is treating Sarah like a piece of property. She's one of his many wives. And the fact that he has not yet approached her probably indicates that he has not had much, if any, actual personal interaction with her. Sarah becomes ultimately a means of sexual pleasure or perhaps of social prowess. So Abimelech also is no Howard Rourkish figure. He too makes mistake after mistake, and we find out that he himself means prayer. And who's the one that's supposed to pray for him? Well, it's the one who has been called by God, Abraham. And also the one whose vice is on full display. The one who forces his wife to say that she is his sister so that his own life can be saved. And so what do we find out about Abraham? What, what is sort of his modus operandi of life here? Not my life for yours, but Sarah, your life for mine. He asks her, Sarah, please do this kindness to me each time we go to a different place. And it's interesting because the word translated here as kindness is the biblical word hesed, which if you're familiar with this word, this is the Hebrew term that most commonly denotes God's covenant faithfulness and love for his people. This is a covenantal notion. And we've talked a lot about covenant through this series. God has bound himself inseparably to Abraham through a covenant. Again, we, we talked about how in the cutting of a covenant, you have animals, you cut them in half. Both parties walk through the pieces and they're saying, if I break my word to you, may I an, end up like these slaughtered animals. But again, it's only God who takes the walk and he's saying, Abraham, if, you break your, if I break my word to you, may I end up like these animals? But of course, that will not happen. But he's also saying, Abraham, if you break your word to me, which, which will happen, May I even still end up like these animals? And so while the hesed of Abraham is your life for mine, the hesed of God is my life for yours. 
How does the Hesed of Abraham play out? Well, it plays out in the exploiting of his wife. But how does the Hesed of God play out? We have to remember something important, that the ultimate referent of human marriage is God and his people, specifically Christ and all those throughout all of history who have trusted in Christ. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the Hesed of God in Christ. The Hesed of Christ is him giving himself up for his bride, giving himself up for his church. Not the Hesed of Abraham, wherein he makes his bride give up her life for him. And while Christ is here put forward as an example, he's first and foremost put forward as the Savior, the one who has given up his life for the church. Again, if Christ is primarily our example, we are crushed. We're saved by our fortitude. We cannot help but have the posture of resignation because we know deep in our own hearts that our hesed is your life for mine, and we play this out in a million different ways. Yet Christ is a standard. He is what God intends us to be. And if that wasn't the case, then the whole thing would be a joke, a mockery of religious ideals and convictions. If we were saved by farce, then we would have a posture of ridicule. Because let's face it, again, our hesed is your life for mine. I once heard an interview with, with Woody Allen, and he said that life could be summed up in the following conversation between two customers at a restaurant. It went something like this. One of the persons says, the food here is terrible. And the other says, yeah, I know. And the portions are way too small. This is salvation by farce. This will make us cynical and this will make us jaded. Because if we're saved by farce, then yes, this picture of the food is the perfect picture of human life. But if Christ is the Hesed of God, the one who gives up his life for us, then we are saved neither by fortitude nor by farce, but by something else, by faith. Perhaps the key verse of Abraham's life is Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's righteousness is by faith. It's not by fortitude. It's not by farce. It's Abraham's faith in the promise of God. It's his faith that he, his household, and his offspring are God's people, and God is their God. It's faith that God himself has, has taken the covenant curse and given Abraham the covenant blessings of fellowship with God himself. Again, Christ is the Hesed of God. Christ is God taking the covenant curse upon himself and bestowing upon us the covenant blessing, the blessing of fellowshipping with God as Father. Therefore, saving faith has two essential components. One, the sorrowful recognition and acknowledgement of what our Hesed truly is, your life for mine. And two, the joyful trust and rest in the Hesed of God, Christ's life for ours. And on Reformation Day, you, you can't go wrong by finishing up with a quote by, by Martin Luther. He gives us the perfect picture to tie these many threads together. Luther speaks of faith as uniting us with Christ, our great bridegroom. Luther says the following, 
If Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's and bestow upon her the things that are his. By the wedding ring of faith, he shares in the sins, death, and pains of hell which are his bride's. And as a matter of fact, he makes them his own and acts as if they were his own and as if he himself had sinned. He suffered, died, and descended into hell that he might overcome them all. Thus, the believing soul, by means of the pledge of faith, is free in Christ, its bridegroom, free from all sins, secure against death and hell, and is endowed with eternal righteousness, life, and salvation of Christ, its bridegroom. This is not the hesed of Abraham. This is the hesed of God in Christ. My life and yours, for yours. Christ does not say, do me this one kindness and put yourself in a vulnerable, dangerous situation. Christ says the following, give me your sin and I will give you my righteousness. Give me your burdens and torments and anxieties and worries and I will give you my rest, relief, and assurance. Give me all the ways you don't measure up, all the ways you fail, all the ways you felt crushed under the examples of others, and I will give you the credit and approval of my perfect life. Give me all the ways you view cynicism and mockery and ridicule as a way to guard yourself against the hurt and vulnerabilities that come with sincerity and earnestness. And I will give you unassailable joy and hope. Give me your death and I will give you my very life. Receive all these benefits and more, not by fortitude, not by farce, but merely by faith in Christ. This is how we become the offspring of Abraham, by recognizing that we are just like Abraham and that God has rescued us in Jesus Christ. Yes, God will conform us to Christ's example, but only after we've been saved by Christ and inseparably bound to Christ. For Abraham himself is bound to God in Christ, and Abraham's own story, as we will see, is far from over. For Christ is the Hesed of God. He's the very embodiment of God saying, my life for yours. Like Abraham, the man who is just as much a mess as any of us, receive this Hesed by faith. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have come into our world that just is defined by saying, by acting in a million different ways, your life for mine. That you've come into this world with a truer message, which is my life for yours. This message that you've embodied and given us in the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.